Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everybody. Uh, we have a lot to get to in the next hour, including two legal setbacks for Donald Trump. Late today, a federal appeals court ruled against his effort to withhold documents from the January 6th committee. And the New York attorney general is seeking a deposition from Trump early next month as part of her investigation into the Trump organization. And we're going to get to both of those stories shortly. But we begin the readout tonight with something that's become abundantly clear. In the battle to save this American experiment with multiracial democracy, there is one party that's standing up for small d democracy, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and that is the Democratic Party. And then there's the party of open hostility to democracy, and that's the Republican Party. Just look at the past 24 hours. President Biden began a two-day global virtual summit this morning on renewing democracy here and abroad. And while he didn't explicitly mention the attack on democracy on January 6th, he stressed that democracy worldwide is headed in the wrong direction. In the face of sustained and alarming challenges to democracy, universal human rights, and all around the world, democracy needs champions. Here in the United States, we know as well as anyone that renewing our democracy and strengthening our democratic institutions requires constant effort. We need to enact what we call the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Right Advancement Act. And that's going to remain a priority for my administration until we get it done. Inaction is not an option. Later at a ceremony honoring the late Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole at the Capitol, Biden called him a hero of democracy. Now, make no mistake, Dole wasn't perfect. It wasn't all great. He was a diehard partisan Republican who backed Donald Trump. But... As a senator, he co-sponsored an extension of the Voting Rights Act in 1982 over the opposition of the Reagan administration. That would be impossible in today's GOP, which is now openly trying to nullify the votes of black and brown Americans while they're fully embracing their inability to accept an election loss. Mango Mussolini's handpicked GOP candidate, Republican candidate for governor of Georgia, David Perdue, told Axios that if he'd been the governor last year, he would not have certified Georgia's election results, meaning he would have supported the coup. Now, never mind that there was zero evidence of fraud in Georgia's election. Multiple recounts confirmed the former president's loss. And Georgia law does not allow the governor to reject the results. But Purdue's pro-coup stance is just one sign of how deeply the former president's anti-democratic big lie has become Republican dogma. Georgia Republicans have also wasted no time taking advantage of a provision in their restrictive voting law passed this year, allowing state election boards to take control of county election boards. Reuters reports that they're now racing to purge black Democrats from those boards, reorganizing six county boards in recent months through county specific legislation in one in one rural county. Local judges appointed a white Republican to replace a black Democrat, giving Republicans a one-vote majority. In another, the Republican County Commission ousted two black Democrats from the board. 
Boards in two of the six counties have already moved to restrict access to the ballot. I'm joined now by Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large of the 19th, and Olivia Troy, director of the Republican Accountability Project and former advisor to Vice President Pence. And Aaron, I want to start with you about Georgia. There is going to be a legal challenge. I will, will note that The Hill is reporting that a judge has cleared away. A federal judge did request, they rejected a request to dismiss a legal challenge to that restrictive law. Uh, the lawsuit was filed this spring by the Georgia NAACP and other groups that argues the state's new voting limits threaten to illegally suppress the vote. So that is good news. The courts are at least acting. But when it comes to either redistricting or literally attempting to seize control of every place that black people vote in Georgia— Republicans are moving right along ahead, right ahead with destroying democracy. What is being done on the ground to turn that back? Yeah, well, you know, Joy, I want to first start by just noting that uh, these are the kinds of moves that would have been subject to preclearance, right, Uh, under the Voting Rights Act uh, pre-Shelby. But now uh, legal challenges are are really uh, one of the main avenues of recourse that that folks have who— understand that, that the, this has the potential to be disenfranchising uh, to voters. And, and you know, I understand that Republicans in Georgia continue to say that this is about election integrity, but it's kind of hard to question that when you had the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger saying uh, that these elections were, uh, you know, deemed safe, secure, and, and accurate. And they were run not once, not twice, but three times the results of those elections, despite the former president, you know, looking for, you know, those 12,000 or so votes that would have declared him the victor in Georgia. But that Reuters story, to your point, Joy, says six county boards have been taken over since the passage of that uh, SB202 earlier this year. Now, there's 159 counties in Georgia. So, you know, we got a long way to go here. But but that this is a cause for alarm uh, because you have a Republican-controlled state election board that's assuming control of county boards that they deem underperforming, whatever they decide that that means. And they're also looking, by the way, into Fulton County, which is the most Democratic and in the South, that means also the blackest uh, county uh, in the state. So uh, these are rural counties. Normally, this kind of thing would happen outside of the bright spotlight of Metro Atlanta if it wasn't for, uh, you know, uh, voting voting rights and voter suppression being such an issue. You've got organizers on the ground that are obviously trying to, once again, make this a, a question of voter turnout versus voter suppression uh, in Georgia, as you've got a couple of really high-profile races, the governor's race uh, and also, uh, you know, Senate, uh, Senate race uh, coming up next year in Georgia. So uh, the stakes could not be higher, uh, but but the infrastructure is already on the ground, in place and in motion uh, to uh, potentially disenfranchise so many of the people that you saw standing in line in record numbers uh, just this time last year and again in January uh, to turn that state blue. And, and the thing is, you know, Olivia, you have on the one hand, part of this is GOTV. Because Republican voter, the Republican voter base cannot stand to lose. They're just like Donald Trump. They stomp their feet and get mad. And if they lose, they say, well, I'm not even going to come out and vote if I don't get to win. I want to guarantee I'm going to win. And Trump wants to guarantee he's going to win. And so people like David Perdue are saying, well, if I'd been in there, I would have guaranteed that you win. The people who refuse to guarantee that Donald Trump won got death threats, death threats all the way down to just the people who low, low paid people were just counting the votes. And Republicans are saying we're willing to threaten your lives, to issue death threats, storm the Capitol, commit violence to do anything. But we must win when we vote. And so part of it is that GOTV to say, no, we'll guarantee. Don't worry. We'll make sure you vote. There's also these restrictive. Let's put up this redistricting map. 
that essentially just draws around a little circle around everybody black and says, we're going to put those in a box and make sure every county is majority white. It is about GOTV, but it is also fundamentally, Olivia, about not believing that elections are legitimate, period, that they just want to seize power. I wonder if there is a way to organize against that. Well, it's a frightening moment for our democracy because it's rigging the system before our very eyes right now. And it is happening at all levels. It's happening, you know, we're getting the disinformation and ongoing disinformation campaigns at the national level by elected Republican officials right now that continue to push these lies. And we're getting at the state and local level by the voting laws that are being passed at the states and the leaders that are empowering this to happen. And quite frankly, with Purdue's statement about the 2020 election, I actually think that should be a disqualifier because you are blatantly lying as a person running for the candidacy of governor in a state. And I think that should be a disqualifying statement because you're lying to the American people. But I think, you know, I think this is going to be a very hard moment for our country, the more that these movements continue to enable this to happen. And I think it's also a very dangerous moment for our country because all of these things actually undermine public confidence, not only in our electoral system, but they're undermining public confidence in our public institutions. And like these threats, these threats are ongoing. And I think that they're going to increase going forward. And I am very concerned about what's going to happen in the 2022 midterms. And look, we're, we're in the middle of democracy week, right, on a global summit. And I just keep thinking about the fact that you know, what happened to the United States being the beacon of democracy and setting the example for the world. Right now, we have foreign adversaries watching what is happening here, watching elected leaders consistently undermine our democratic system. And you've got to believe they're pointing to that. They're pointing to that example and they're mocking us. They're using this, undermining us globally as well. I mean, there's multiple layers of implications of what is happening here. Well, I mean, you've got, so at the local level, I mean, it's thorough, right, Aaron? I mean, you've got these conspiracy theorists who do everything from QAnon on running for all of these local and state officials spots. So they're going to be in position from the school board all the way up theoretically to the governorship to all be in place to implement the big lie, not just to believe it, but to implement it. You've got Trump hunting his sort of enemies list and trying to take out any uh, political leader, any Republican who refused to do it last time so that he can be guaranteed that they'll do it this time. And so I, you know, and I wonder how we even conduct elections in Georgia if in fact Republicans have put themselves in place to reverse the results. You know, this is sort of a Wilmington moment, um, because if Democrats manage to put in place a Stacey Abrams as governor, then they will have done that on top of what they just did with these two senators. God knows what's going to happen. God knows what happens after that. Your thoughts. Well, and this is why you have uh, Democrats in places like Georgia and places like Texas continuing to push for federal legislation around voting rights, right? Because while voting rights is stalling in Congress, voter suppression is absolutely on the march in at the state level and is going to be when state legislatures reconvene at the top of 2022. So, you know, what's happening in between these presidential cycles at the local level absolutely sets the stage around uh, ballot access in, in the upcoming election and beyond. Uh, you know, Olivia mentioned the... Uh, democracy summit that's happening right now in Washington, uh, the, the remarks that, that President Biden and Vice President Harris were giving uh, were being made to other countries, but they just as easily could have been made to Congress, right? I mean, uh, I was at President Biden's major speech in Philadelphia when he talked about voting rights. And, and uh, really, so many of the organizers uh, that, that helped to put this administration in office are really wanting uh, him to continue to push 
for this. Uh, he called the fight for democracy the defining challenge of our time. He brought up, you know, quoted the late Congressman John Lewis, who we know was a civil rights icon who risked his life for voting rights. Uh, in Tulsa, he tasked Kamala Harris with, with voting rights as part of her portfolio. And she said today, you know, things like, uh, ensuring every eligible American can access the right to vote is an effort that she's proud to lead and that executive action is not enough. Uh, she said the status of women is the status of democracy in this country. And so, you know, saying those kinds of things on the world stage, I, I think absolutely indicates that they are aware uh, that the rest of the world is watching. Uh, President Biden said that the U.S. is going to lead by an act, I mean, lead by example, but uh, right now, that example very much looks like voter suppression as opposed to championing voting rights, right? And and so I think uh, the world is wondering what that example is going to be going forward because we are losing our standing in terms of being kind of the leading democracy that, that the rest of the world looks to uh, for guidance as to how uh, to conduct, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a small-D democratic government. And, you know, we're, we're going to have to bring you guys back on, you ladies back on, because I think one of the questions people always ask is, so what do we do about it? And I think that's something we have to really think about is, OK, we know what they're doing. The question is, you know, giving having a democracy summit is nice and giving speeches is great, but we need to figure out what we're going to actually do about this because we have to fight back. Um, Aaron Haynes, Olivia Troy, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, more key witnesses come forward today to meet with the January 6th selection committee as Trump loses again in court, overturning over documents. Plus, Two major announcements from New York Attorney General Letitia James. One involves Donald Trump's in the investigation of Donald Trump. The other regards her own political future. Meanwhile, Republicans seem to be rooting for a bad e for bad economic news, but most signs show the Biden economy is booming. And remember the TV show 24? Tonight's absolute worst is a real-life 24 hours of dangerous misinformation. You're not going to believe it. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. There is breaking news in the January 6th investigation. Late this afternoon, in an appeals court rejected Donald Trump's efforts to block turning over White House records to the January 6th committee. In a unanimous opinion from the three-judge panel, the court said Trump provided no basis to override President Biden's decision not to invoke executive privilege over the documents. It's expected that Trump's lawyers will file an appeal to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the top Republican on the House Select Committee, Liz Cheney, tweeted today that the committee has already met with nearly 300 witnesses, including four more key figures today. Kash Patel, the former chief of staff to then acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller, Chris Krebs, former director of the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Agency, who was fired by Trump after declaring the last election to be the most secure in America's history, 
Attorney John Eastman, notorious author of The Blueprint to Steal the Election, and Ali Alexander, the organizer of the Stop the Steal rally that drew Trump supporters to Washington on January 6th. Now, as far as criminal charges go, the government has brought charges against more than 700 of the MAGA supporters who participated in the insurrection itself. And serious questions remain about how so many people from across the country were convinced to take such radical actions that day. Joining me now is Eamon Moyhedin, host of MSNBC's Eamon and the new MSNBC original podcast, American Radical, that investigates the radicalization of one of the Capitol riot of the Capitol insurrectionists. And Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC columnist. Glenn, I am going to start with you on this appeals court decision. You know, I don't have a lot of faith in the, Supreme, in the United States Supreme Court, quite bluntly. But what do you think the chances are that they will, number one, review this in expedited fashion? And number two, that they will reverse, in your view, reverse this decision to say, no, executive privilege really does mean the current president, not the last one. You know, first of all, Joy, there's no reason for the Supreme Court to exercise review of this case. There's no serious constitutional issue to be decided or resolved. This is almost a rare instance where you have two branches of government in agreement. The legislative branch wanted the information from the National Archives and the executive branch. Joe Biden said, we think these documents should be turned over because it's in the national interest for the House Select Committee to get to the bottom of January 6th. There really is no reason for the Supreme Court to exercise its discretion and take review of the case. And I'm with you, Joy. I don't have a ton of confidence in the uh, Supreme Court as presently constituted. But, you know, here's what I will say. When they had the opportunity to review election challenges, they declined to do it. When they had an opportunity to decide whether Donald Trump is a king, because they had to decide whether he should be required to turn over tax returns and financial documents, they bluntly said, you're not a king. You're subject to the system like any other human being. And so I think on the presidential power front and on the integrity of our elections front, the Supreme Court's track record has actually been pretty good, unlike its track record on other fronts. Yeah, I mean, and you know, Eamon, part of my lack of faith uh, in the Supreme Court is that, you know, and you, you have a podcast that's about the radicalization of one of the individuals that was at the Capitol. But I think the radicalization of the Republican Party, it's from the rooter to the tutor. It's from top to bottom. It's a Mark Meadows who used to be a norm core Republican congressman who now is facing potential contempt of Congress by his former colleagues because he's decided that, no, I don't believe subpoenas are real. I don't have to follow them. The, the Steve Bannon model is now the, the model, right, where you can just say, I just ignore the subpoena. And it goes all the way down to your average, you know, what used to be a regular Republican. Republican who's now a QAnon, you know, and so I, I think that radicalization to me also includes the court that where they're like, we can throw out precedent. Stare decisis means literally nothing. We can just get rid of it because our religious beliefs say we're going to get rid of abortion. It's it's total. And so I wonder what you make of it just as somebody who's, you know, you've been able to cover international radicalization movements and the domestic one here. Where do you see the sort of three points? Well, listen, I mean, you know, forget Mark Meadows for a second. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's telling Hello. you that she is somebody who has espoused QAnon theories. She may have apologized for them. But quite honestly, when she speaks in private, she still perpetuates that the election was stolen. And so she's still out there in places like northwest Georgia, where I spent the better part of the last year investigating this radicalization. And it's people like her who are taking young women and men from the QAnon world 
and connecting them to the Trump world and the MAGA world and saying, hey, listen, if you partake and you become a foot soldier in our movement, you can go and try to overturn our democracy, overturn our election. Put the Supreme Court on the side for a moment. When you're looking at what is happening and playing out with the issue of radicalization, it's young people. They may be destitute. They may certainly have some, you know, out on their luck, if you will, or down on their luck, bombarded with this disinformation of that the election was stolen. And then they follow demagogues, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or whether it's Donald Trump, who says, I alone can fix it. Come, if I shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, they're still going to support me. And they believe that they are the foot soldiers in this movement. So when he says, go up to the Capitol and stop the transfer of power, stop the certification of the election, they're prepared prepared to do it. And in some cases, tragically, pay for it with their lives. And that's part of what we've been investigating over the last year. How did this young woman in our podcast, Roseanne, go from being someone who was apolitical, somebody whose family said she actually made fun of Donald Trump early on in his administration? She didn't take him seriously. How does she go from that to suddenly voting for the first time in her life and becoming a foot soldier in this very dangerous ideology? Right. And, and we're going to play. Let's play a quick clip from it. Let's play a clip from this um, special that um, Eamon produced. Let me ask you this, Justin. You you said I don't understand why this is being trade as a, a portrayed as a, a a violent event, but at the end of the day, you have four people who are dead. Yes. Does the president, President Trump, have blood on his hands? Does he have blood on his hands? No. You don't think the president bears any responsibility as to what? It was a peace. It was a peaceful event. Absolutely not. But it turned violent. I know, and we weren't the perpetuators of the violence. Do you understand? It was peaceful, 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 peaceful. It was peaceful. And, and, and just to say for just a moment, it is a podcast, by special I mean podcast. It, it's total, right? And it's whether it's this person or the woman from Publix, the Publix heiress who's sending $650,000 over to say, let's fund this, you know, stop the steel movement. It doesn't feel like it's it's in, like it can be separated, right? It feels like it's sort of, permanent radicalization. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm so glad you played that soundbite because from the podcast, because first of all, that was the guy who was with Roseanne in the final hours, final minutes of her life. This interview that we tracked down happened the day after. So it gives you a sense that even after the world had seen the insurrection, even though we had seen Trump supporters attack the police with flags, waving Trump flags, throwing projectiles, hurting the police, smashing through windows, they still believe that it was a peaceful protest. They still believe that it was not them that were the violent ones and that they were being instigated and agitated by Antifa and BLM. So it gives you a sense of the denial that they live in, the inability to see the reality for what it is, and they live in their own bubble. Whether they are somebody who's living overseas funding money and funneling money to these groups and movements, or whether it is as the president and his allies like Marjorie Taylor Greene continue to say behind closed doors that the election was stolen, it is ultimately fueling a very dangerous radicalization in this country. Listen, really quickly, the number of people who have messaged me since this podcast have come out has come out saying, I, had a, I have a mother who's a QAnon believer. I have a sister who has gone down this rabbit hole. They have have severed their relationships with. And it's it's a serious problem that I think if this was any other context in this country, if this was Muslim ideology or extremist ideology in the context of Islamic radicalism that we've spent 20 years fighting, if that would have happened, that jihadist ideology, this country would be up in arms seeing the kind of radicalization yeah. that is taking place uh, in various parts uh, of this country.
Oh, I mean, and to say nothing of if, if, you know, if Muslims were like posting pictures of themselves with the whole family, including five year olds holding uh, firearms and holding AR-15s. You know, it, let me very quickly ask you, Glenn, is it does it become a defense? You know, we going all the way up to this public's heiress who's throwing all this money at this insurrection activity. Um, people like uh, what's her name is uh, what's her name? Sidney Powell, who used to be a respected attorney who's gone all the way down the rabbit hole and is being investigated for her activities. Is radicalization at some point something that they can use in their own defense? It's not a legal defense, but it's a mitigator. In other words, it might reduce somebody's punishment or the sentence they're facing for the crimes they committed, but it will not get them out from under criminal responsibility for what they did. But all of this joy, it, it, it highlights the fact that Donald Trump is the one who incited it. And his criminal associates are the one who stoked these flames with their lies about stolen votes and stolen elections. And Donald Trump on January 6th told people what to do. Go down there and stop the steal. That's an action word. And the fact that he used the word steal, we all know that's a lie. So that provides the corrupt intent for Donald Trump's inciting this insurrection. That's where the responsibility needs to lie. Yeah, and we're using the right word for it, and that's what we have to call it. It's radicalization, no, no, no different than if it's those, you know, in a, in another country. It's still radicalization by an individual who has a self interest and who doesn't do the violence himself because he doesn't want to pay for the crimes. He lets other people do the crimes. Uh, Eamon Mohedin, congratulations on the podcast. Glenn Kirshner, thank you very much. Appreciate you both. Still ahead, New York State Attorney General Letitia James would like a word with the twice impeached, disgraced former president about his business practices. Does this mean that her investigation into the Trump Organization is nearing an end? And we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. Thanks to former Trump fixer Michael Cohen's testimony in 2019, New York Attorney General Tish James started looking into Donald Trump's finances. And now she's planning to depose Trump, calling him in to answer questions under oath on January 7th. James is investigating whether Trump committed fraud by improperly inflating the value of his assets on annual on annual financial statements in order to secure loans and obtain economic and tax benefits. They're looking into several properties where Trump reported different valuations to banks and tax authorities. For ejemplo, the Trump organization owns an office building at 40 Wall Street in Manhattan. 
In 2012, when the company was listing its assets for potential lenders, it said the building was worth $527 million, which would make it among the most valuable in New York. But just a few months later, the Trump organization told property tax officials that the entire 70-story building was worth less than a high-end Manhattan condo, just $16.7 million. According to newly released city records, that was less than one-thirtieth of the amount it had claimed the year before. That property is now under scrutiny from the Manhattan District Attorney and New York Attorney General, along with several others like it for which the Trump organization gave vastly different value estimates. According to public records and people familiar with the investigations who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss ongoing inquiries. As The Washington Post notes, appraisers have said it is highly unusual for a company to provide such widely different valuations of the same properties at the same time. Trump's lawyer responded today saying, quote, Mr. Trump is right when he says this is a witch hunt. We are not concerned about it because he has done nothing wrong. I'm joined now by Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Tristan Snell, former assistant attorney general of New York and managing partner of Main Street Law. Mr. Snell, I'm going to point you to the tweet that you put up earlier today. You said if if the New York AG wants to depose Trump, it's because they've already assembled their case. Trump's testimony would just be the icing. You don't go after the CEO until you've already gotten all the other evidence. This case is 90 percent built. Does that mean you believe that Donald Trump will be indicted? Oh, OK, we're having we're having some issues with uh, Mr. Snell's audio. So we're going to come back to him. I'm going to go to you, Tim O'Brien, to set aside whether or not we believe that there will actually be an indictment. A lot of people doubt Trump will ever face accountability. But if he shows up for this deposition, you've dealt with him in a deposition before. How do you expect him to behave? Well, you know, Donald Trump's biggest problem, Joy, is, is that he is a flagrant and unhinged liar. And that is. Uh, uh, a lawyer's worst case scenario to put someone under oath who isn't capable of actually telling the truth. Um, you know, this is a very targeted deposition. When we deposed Donald Trump, we had lots and lots of issues to discuss with him over lots and lots of years. We looked at the valuation of all of his properties. We had his tax returns. We looked at his dealings with his insurers. We looked at what he got for speaking uh, fees when he went out on the road. Um, Tish James's office is focused, I think, primarily on three properties, Seven Springs in Westchester, 40 Wall Street, and his hotel in Chicago. And, and on this 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 issue of whether or not he inflated the values when he wanted a loan and deflated the values when he wanted to lower his tax bill. Um, I do think this signals that she's very near the end of her investigation. I do not think she'd seek to depose him unless they felt they were fully armored up with all of the the evidence they needed to put on the table across from him. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how he responds to documentary evidence that's in uh, contradicts what he or people in his organization have said in the past. That's what my lawyers did when we deposed him and we stripped the bark off of him like an old tree. Uh, You know, we, we, we caught him in, I think more than 30, 30 different lies during two days of depositions in late 2007. Um, The other thing to remember, you know, is that her investigation is linked to Cy Vance's investigation. Um, They have been collaborating throughout and Vance's investigation, I think, is is broader and and has longer legs than Tish James. So I think you can see these as 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 part of the same effort. Yeah. And Mr. Snell, we've got you back. Um, So if they are now trying to depose the CEO, depose Donald Trump, does that indicate to you that someone below him has talked, has given him up and given up documents and information? 
I think yes, but really the documents are really the, the documents are really the key thing for the civil case because at the end of the day, the civil case does not need to show intent. So it's less about testimony and more about the documents, and the documents are, are plain as day. The, the thing you showed earlier, Joy, really just puts the nail, uh, it hits the nail right on the head. That is a 3,300% disparity between what they reported to a lender and what they reported to the tax authorities. These numbers really speak for themselves. Donald Trump didn't need, anyone, didn't need anybody to snitch on him. He snitched on himself with how broad of a disparity that was. And can what in the, to please explain to us the difference in what would be if Donald Trump were to lose this civil case and Letitia James were to win it, what yeah. would be the penalties for that versus a criminal case? So the reason why everybody's been sleeping on this case and not really giving it that much attention is because I you know people who want to see Donald Trump be brought to justice, they want to see him go to prison. This is a civil case. He's not going to go to prison. No one will for this matter. However, this could take an economic wrecking ball to the Trump organization. This could mean hundreds of millions of dollars in back taxes, penalties, other fees that he could have to pay to the state as well as to the lenders that he defrauded. So this could be ruinous for him financially. And could he then face the criminal case if if Cy Vance's case is connected? Exactly. He's going to face it with a one-two punch. He's going to have the civil case and the criminal case going. We didn't realize until today how far along the civil case is. This is really far along. We wouldn't bring in somebody for this kind of testimony. uh, Like we were just saying, 90% plus of this case is already built. So this is really far along. He's going to get it. Trump's going to get it from both directions on this one. You know, and Tim, I've always sort of somewhat suspected that because of the sort of vagaries of the, you know, the sort of uh, daintiness of the Department of Justice and these OLC memos that say, oh, don't touch a former president, that Donald Trump is more likely to go down like Al Capone on his taxes, on the money stuff, and that that's the stuff he's facing. He's facing a bunch of other civil lawsuits. He's facing a bunch of other criminal inquiries. But in the end, is it going to be his lies when it comes to his money that are going to be his biggest um, danger? As long as they can tie him to those lies and tie him to what they are assessing are criminal acts, that's they are going to have to show intent in the criminal case. And and Donald Trump um, is not a a sophisticated man. He's an ignoramus in many ways, but he is a survivor and he has this reptilian ability to evade the law by surrounding himself with other people he throws under the bus when push comes to shove. And undoubtedly, he will blame this on accountants. Undoubtedly, he'll blame this on other people in his own organization. Uh, So there's going to be a really high bar, I think, for Cy Vance's office to say they they know he did it and they knew and he knew he was doing something wrong. Yeah, he'll find a patsy, and he, he always seems to find some that are willing to do it. It's really strange. Tim O'Brien, thank you very much. Tristan Snell, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank and tonight's you. absolute worst is still ahead. But first, you wouldn't know it from watching the right-wing news channels, but the American economy is actually doing pretty darn well despite the ongoing pandemic. Next on The Readout. Okay, so we got some really, really great news this morning. The number of people filing for weekly unemployment claims dropped to a 52-year low, something we haven't seen since 1969, the year Neil Armstrong walked on the moon when the average newspaper cost 10 cents, when the president was Nixon and the top TV show was Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Look it up, kids. 
And if you adjust today's unemployment numbers for population increase, jobless claims have never been lower than they are today. In the first year of his administration, President Biden has overseen the addition of 5.8 million more jobs than Trump did during the same amount of time. Now, by any normal metrics, it is a Biden boom. And yet, the American people are still singing the blues. A new NPR Marist poll finds that a majority of Americans say that they don't feel the direct payments that came from the Biden policies or the expanded child tax credits that they've been receiving for months. It also showed that the American public doesn't understand how Build Back Better, with its free pre-K and paid family leave and lowering prescription drug costs, will help address their top concern, inflation. And even when they do acknowledge that they have received direct cash payments, an equal share of those polled give the credit to both Joe Biden and Republicans who literally opposed giving you that money and voted against it. It is a complete disconnect between reality and the feels, which the gal who the, the woman who directed the polling um, explained as the result of Democrats not having a unified message on what they're doing. Cue Joe Manchin. The unknown we're facing today is much greater uh, than the need that people are believing this uh, aspirational bill that we're looking at. And we've got to make sure we get this right. We just can't continue to flood the market as we've done. Okay, so weirdly enough, Yachtman Joe and his friends in the Republican sedition crew seem to lose all their inhibitions about costs and inflation when it comes to pumping your taxpayer dollars into the Pentagon. The Senate is pushing to finalize a defense budget that's going to cost nearly eight trillion with a T dollars over 10 years. That is almost five times more money for guns and tanks than Manchin and company are willing to spend on you, your kids, your health care, your clean water and your elderly parents. Where's Senator Manchin's concern about flooding the market when it comes to that money? You know, the guy from West Virginia might want to listen to the former senator from Delaware, Joe Biden, who once said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. I'm joined now by David K. Johnson, tax expert, co-founder of DCReport.org and author of The Making of Donald Trump. David, you know, I feel like part of the challenge that Democrats have is that they do good economic policy, but not good political policy. Back when George W. Bush was president, he sent out what we used to call the Bush Bucks, $300 and $600 checks. You get this one big boom, cash infusion. Economically, it's not as it's not as good because you're not like layering the money over time. You spend it one time and it's gone, but it gives him a political boost. Joe Biden actually got that when they did that first check, that $1,600, and they made up the rest of it, and it was sort of like, you got $2,000. His approval ratings were up. But now that they've layered the money out so that you're getting it every month, people go, well, I don't feel like I got any money, and now I'm mad. <laughs> you know? is, is that the problem, that they're doing good economic policy but bad politics? Oh, they're doing very bad politics. This White House communications office couldn't sell ice cream to children in July. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is one of the constant problems the Democrats have. It's, you know, here's this 14-point policy memo and blah, 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 and this percentage of that, instead of reaching right into the guts of people. So, you know, most people don't pay close attention to the news. They don't understand government spending policy or anything else. They understand practical things. I'm surprised that the checks to parents haven't had more of an effect. Yeah. Uh, beneficial for the White House. But, you know, right now we've got a 4.6% jobless rate, very, very low by historical standards. The number of people who are um, uh, unable to find full-time work or they've given up, it's called U6. It's the broadest measure of unemployment. 
it's only 7.4%. Now, I wish it was lower, but that's a very low number. And the number of people who are long-term unemployed, they haven't been able to find a job for six months or more. It fell last month by 136,000. Try and find that in news reports on the front page of the papers, buried in the jump. And if it weren't for government jobs shrinking, largely school teachers, older Mm -hmm. school teachers can't risk getting COVID or they have a spouse or a compromised child or parent, uh, they can't risk getting infected. If it weren't for all the losses of those jobs, we'd have even more job growth than we do. And in October... The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the networks all reported disappointing job growth of yes. 210 jobs. Donald Trump, before the pandemic, averaged 187,000 jobs. So that's 12% more right. than... But when he, but when he did it, the, the, the same media would be like, great job number. It's, it's partly a disconnect also because the media talks about Republicans and Democrats differently, right? There's a much lower bar for Republicans. But I also wonder, too, if... It's because there is sort of this worship of the corporate man. I mean, if you want to blame somebody for how things don't feel well, think about companies like Kellogg's that makes your cereal, where they're about to lay off and permanently replace 1,400 union members who dared to go on strike because they want decent wages. There's this photo that's been circulating on Twitter um, that's a Kellogg, Kellogg union worker saying, I feed your families, but I can't feed mine. There are people like Elon Musk who's like, nah, don't pass the bill that's going to give people daycare because I want my money. Like you have all you have, they're going to space the billionaires. They've got so much extra cash. Yet the villain is the nice older guy in the White House who gave you like the the two the two thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, because oil prices didn't go down enough. You know, it's eh. People are terrified about this inflation. I just jousted with some of the Internet. The highest inflation since World War II. No, uh, 7% is not. We had 20% inflation no. just before I was born. We've had 15% inflation in the past. During Reagan. There's no perspective. And journalists blame a lot of the blame for this, for writing stories that read like damn memos on <laughs> policy instead of news stories that talk in plain English. Yes. But the House and the Democrats have to learn marketing. The Republicans are really good at marketing. I admire how good they are at marketing. And the Democrats know this is a problem, but they never do anything about it. I hope we can get some Democrats on and say, what's wrong with you people? Go hire some consultants to teach you yeah. the principles of marketing. It's weird because Democrats have Hollywood, but they don't seem to ask them, like, how do you do marketing? I mean, the other thing is that Republicans, like to your point, you know, they've taken the word inflation and turned it into the boogeyman word. I guarantee you most of the Republican politicians couldn't define inflation if you if you if you paid them to. They don't even know what it means. They just say a word and they go, "Eh, it's Biden. And so I wonder if it's the simplicity and the simplistic nature of Republican communication that makes it so effective. Oh, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I was on Al Franken's podcast the other day and I brought this up and he said, well, you know, uh, our bumper stickers all end with continued on next bumper sticker. <laughs> That's ex- exactly right. That's exactly right. David K. Johnson, who speaks in normal, plain English. Thank you very much. Cheers. Um, thank you. Tonight's absolute worst is next. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there. <laughs> All the Republicans want for Christmas is for you to get COVID, or so it seems. What else would explain the snake oil mentality of the American right? One of those Republicans is touting a new fake cure. This time, it's elected snake oil salesman Ron Johnson, who says gargling mouthwash kills COVID. 
Now, let me be clear. Listerine is some pretty powerful stuff. But by powerful, we mean it can eradicate the scent of garlic bread from your tongue after a tasty lunch. Not powerful as in it can kill COVID. Otherwise, it'd be in the water. But more importantly, do not listen to this fool. Senator Johnson is not a doctor or a scientist. He's not any of the Johnsons and Johnson and Johnson. He's a public health menace, and he's spreading misinformation they can kill. And then, of course, there's super spreader television host Tuckums Carlson. Hardly an avatar for the manly man. He's more of a Josh Hawley than a method man, which may explain why he created a fake log cabin set for his daytime show so he could pollute real journalism even further while making you think he knows how to hunt his own dinner. On Wednesday, casual Tuckums talked to far-right racist Brexiteer Nigel Farage about British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's bout with COVID. Getting COVID emasculated him. It changed him. It, we, it feminized him. It weakened him as a man. The virus itself, this is true, does tend to take away the life force in some people, I notice. I mean, it does yes. feminize people. I, no one ever says that, but it, it's true. Okay, Tuckums Poo, let's unpack your woman hating for just a bit. It's like textbook misogyny, this baseline retro variation where weak equates female. Even though women, through a long, painful, and awe-inspiring process, are how lives are created and the reason the human race forges on. It is women who are the life force, not weak-chinned blokes who ditch their bow ties for fake log cabins. But this isn't just about ridiculous people saying ridiculous things. People believe what these not-so-bright-wingers are saying. And not just in red states. Here's Jordan Klepper of The Daily Show talking to anti-vaxxers in, of all places, Los Angeles. What do you think of the COVID vaccine? I don't think it's a vaccine. I think it's snapping the DNA in half. Where did you hear this? A Siamese cat? You recommend for public health people meditating? Of course. People working out in groups? Definitely. Eating healthy? Definitely. COVID vaccine? No. No. A coffee enema? Possibly. <laughs> hey, sometimes you need a little sugar in your news about doomsday. But this is happening in every state, red, blue, and purple. It is dangerous, lethal, and it comes as we face a possible winter surge from Omicron. The Republicans and Tuckums want to see that surge burn brighter than a Fox News Christmas tree, which is why they are tonight's absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.